Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's what would the smart party do? We've got more guests. <laughs> Which is can't just help awesome. ourselves, can we? We can't help it, guys. We've got even more guests on. I'll catch up with you soon, mate, because I'm too busy talking to these other people. <laughs> Maybe we'll have a cast <laughs> together one day where I can ask how I... I'll do it now. How are you, mate? You all right? Yeah, I'm pretty good, actually. We do need to sort of start talking about some of the things that are happening out there in RPG world as well, besides our guests. But like, there's just so many top names battering down the door. I don't, I don't know when I'm going to find time. So I'll, I'll do a quick one now, shall I? Mm, go on, quickly. Good friend of the show, Richard Williams, also known as a Pistolary Richard. He's doing an indie RPG pipeline thing, looking into what's new in indie RPGs, basically, and letting people know about that. He does his dragon meat stuff as well. We might get him to do a bit for our smart zine. That's cool. But he's also doing uh, some awards, or has been over the last few weeks. And it's for people that are kind of behind the scenes a little bit. So mm-hmm. it's organises the London Indie RPG Meetup, or Lloyd Guillen, who's did like, Games on Demand at Expo and Dragon Meet and things like that. So well worth going over and checking that kind of stuff, because he's giving some props to people who are basically the glue that are keeping the role-playing games activity going on without the glory necessarily of being a writer or a, a rock star DM or a podcast or anything like that. So well worth keeping an eye out on, the, on Richard's stuff because he's, he's got some good content there and he's got some good people helping him out in terms of James Muller and, and Lloyd, who I've mentioned, who are casting an eye over new games that are coming out at the minute and giving some good direction and best of their views of what's going on. Yeah, Richard's always been a long-term friend of the show, a big supporter of us from way, way, way back in the day and... Um... We were very, very happy to return that favour. So go check out Richard's stuff. Playmaker Awards. Typically, Richard, it's all about what other people are doing for the hobby and you know, not about him yeah, at all. Yeah, so, bless him. You know, good on you, Rich, mate. Keep it going. Yeah, and there's, there's lots of stuff coming out as well. I've just had landed the PDF from Things from the Flood, which is the oh, kind of Stranger Things yeah, Teenagers yeah, yeah. version of Tales of the Loop. So that's going to be good. I'll run some of that at Seven Hills, which is happening in a couple of weeks. I've also been getting excited about Mothership, which mm-hmm. we mentioned in the mm-hmm. interview coming up, actually. But that's, if you like Alien and Event Horizon and that kind of feel and a bit of OSR sci-fi goodness, look it up. Because the good thing about Mothership as well, you, you probably grabbed it yourself, Baz, yeah. is the player's guide's for free on PDF, basically, or pay what you want. So you can get it for nothing, see if you like it, and then uh, tip the guys a couple of dollars. Yeah, there's... There's loads going on out there in the game world right now at that kind of DIY level, which is so, so refreshing in layout and graphic design and just grabby ideas, but also grabby imagery that you can't help but just think of, I want to I wanna get this game going. I'm not going to have to do homework mm-hmm. or research or, or any level of study. I'm, I'm going to get this game and I want to phone up my friends and message people and, and get a group together for next week because it's just accessible and, and in your face. Um, and it's not just Mothership. There's been a bunch of stuff that's done that. You know, a friend of the show, Dan Sells, always produced stuff like that through through his yeah. imprint. And the OSR is notoriously good at stuff like this. But Mothership is, is a different level of, of just visuals, isn't it? It's a feast. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, the Discord for it's really good as well. We, we've said like we're quite old and don't get stuff like that, but uh, the community they've got around Mothership's really tight. And if you go on their Discord, they've got like an eyes-only bit They've got a bit for wardens, they call them, like gems. They've got like a map section, a bunch of ideas, and people keep coming up with saying, give me 10 things that are like this, like a an officious bureaucrat that you have to deal with, and then mm-hmm. everybody jumps in and puts some entries in the, in the table for you. So uh, if you want to know more about it, as I say, you can get the book for free anyway, if you want to, basically, and then chuck the money afterwards. And the Discord channel is just full of ideas and cool people. On my nightstand, um, I've been going through the box of Forbidden Lands, the fantasy role-playing game of exploration. Again, build a little bit as old school, 
but it's fresh off the printers, so I, I don't know. I don't know if that's just marketing hype or not. But there's um, there's lots to like in that. I mean, a deep box with two hardback books in it, amongst other things, is is a kind of an old fashioned joy in itself. And I've really enjoyed reading some of that stuff. It's great to see stuff that doesn't just come from from you know America or the UK to see definitely uh, sort of a, a, another viewpoint on on what it's like to have orcs and goblins and fighters and wizards. Um, Mm. And I've really enjoyed certain sections of it. I'm just getting my teeth into the God section now, which isn't something I'd normally dwell on. But this one's kind of... It's cool. Yeah. It's different and gritty. And I don't want to say Scandi Noir, but I guess I've just said it, haven't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. It's too late. Yeah, we'll see if that one hits the road. Don't know if I'm going to get a game of it anytime soon, but it's intriguing. Yeah, it's like an old school hex crawl, I think that's why. And the art's a little bit black and white like you used to get in the old fancy fancy books in the internals. So it's it's definitely got an old school feel to it, um mm. and, and old school adventures, but it has got a twist, like you say, so uh, and for like I think it's about thirty eight quid for the hard for like a two hardback books and maps and stickers, uh, a legends booklet and it comes in a nice box. Mm. I mean that's just all cool. Other stuff that's uh, that's been uh, getting me going recently is the King of Dungeons feedback is starting to roll back in. My playtest copies have been out there for about four or five weeks now, at the time of recording, and I'm starting to get some amazing feedback. It's it's really really useful. There's bits people love, there's bits people don't love, and it's just it's blowing me away to see reports of of my little game out there being played by people I've never met. That is absolutely bonkers, uh, but but possibly the most thrilling thing I've ever had happen to me. I need to get out more, I know. But King of Dungeons is, <laughs> is, is rocking along really nicely, and I'm folding that feedback in as soon as it comes back to me. So if, if there's if there's still anyone yet listening to this podcast, who wants a free role-playing game based on guilds and charters and rivalries and reversals in the mean streets of your favourite fantasy city? Well, dr- drop us a line through any medium you care to mention. Um, I'll send you a copy. It will cost you nothing but a little bit of feedback. That's all I need from you at this stage. So um, there you go. King of Dungeons. You've heard about it here first, and you hear about it here every time. Thank you very much. <laughs> Shill over. You'll be sick of hearing about it in a year's time. But get on the ground floor now. You can be hipster. <laughs> thanks to um, thanks to Thomas and Duncan as well, our new patrons this month. Yeah, thanks guys. Every little bit of support helps. Yeah, we, we're really grateful for that. It helps us keep the internet man at bay with his charging costs for hosting and various other things and new microphones. But, you know, any likes or shares as well or iTunes reviews, anything like that you can do to support the show is always appreciated by us too. Yeah, and one of, one of the big bits that comes from support of the show is that uh, it gives us a, a little bit of pulling power, I guess you could say. And hopefully you've all enjoyed some of the, the top guests that we've had on in recent weeks and we've got many, many more to come. We've got some terrific guests lined up, not least of which is the star of our show for this week. We've spent some really enjoyable time in the company of Kate Welch, uh, games designer over at Wizards of the Coast. She's just celebrated her first year working there. She's on the D&D design team, and she had some fantastic insights for us about what it's like to be to be the person who puts the stat blocks together, who, who gets <laughs> down and dirty with the, the actual bits that hit pages that end up in books that you read. And uh, it was a great hour, wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing. Like obviously, getting Mike Mills on the show isn't enough, so we no. needed to get extra designers on for D and D because it is such a huge deal. But yeah, Kate's uh, a really engaging guest, had a lot to say, and I'm sure everybody who listens to this will absolutely love it. So, without further ado, here's me and Gaz. The day we spoke to Kate Welch. 
The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! And so, here she is, the delightful Kate Welsh. How are you doing, Kate? I'm wonderful. Thank you guys for having me. This is really exciting. Well, thank you for taking time away from your wizard's party that's happening in the background. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you can hear the background noise. It's a very rare party that we're having. It's a little lunch gathering that we're having. Yeah, we're keeping you from it as well, which seems really cruel. Although, I think you've got a beer on the go, so, you know, well done. <laughs> I wish. No, I've had my, I had my fill of lunch. I'm I'm all good. I'm very excited to do this podcast. <laughs> Listen, we we ought to probably tell our listeners uh, who are maybe is not as tuned into gaming and everything that's going on. Could you give us maybe a little bit of an idea about uh, about what you do over at Wizards of the Coast at the moment, please, Kate? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I uh, just as of the other day, I've been at Wizards of the Coast for a year as a game designer. What that means, I remember when I was leaving video games, my coworkers were like, wow, it's really cool. But like, isn't that game already designed? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair question. Um, so generally what my day-to-day is, is just uh, working on these the, the pretty alarming uh, book production schedule that we have. You know, we've, we're putting out three or four books a year and... Those are always a rolling cadence. You know, those are getting started up a year, two years in advance, and then hopefully finished up, you know, six months before they're supposed to go to print. And then you're also working on the next several releases at the same time. So my uh, my job has been, um, I've been doing a mix. I started off learning everything there was to know about monster stat blocks and making sure that I knew the the inside and outside of how to make sure that those numbers were correct and that everything was accounted for and um, to, to learn to do the math and everything else. Um, I did a lot of editing. Uh, I started just to get an idea of what the D&D house style guide is and, and to make sure that I know how to make things look right in our, in our books. Um, but the, the last couple of months, I've gotten to do quite a bit more creative work, which is where my passion is. And the, so that has been a variety of brainstorming meetings, of world building meetings, um, the kind of meetings where people like they, you have a light bulb go off in your head and everybody's standing up and yelling with excitement. You know, it's it, those, those kinds of meetings are my favorite. Um, so I've been working on uh, that all last year, I was working on the book that'll be our spring release. Um, and then currently I'm working on the book that I think is going to be our fall release, uh, which neither of which I can give you guys any details about yet but it is uh, i think it's going to be a really good year so you finally saw through it did you they got you making stat blocks for a few months and at some point you came in and went hang on a minute you're just gonna do <laughs> front work. that's you're right not me anymore. <laughs> yeah eight months in i was like wait a second <laughs> it used to be i used to call it when i first started the stat block creation and and like double checking stat blocks to make sure that they were mathematically correct i called that eating my vegetables 
um, because I, I, it was the thing I enjoyed the least. But now I think I love it a lot. I think it's really fun um, it's because I understand now where all the numbers come from and why some of the numbers are fudged and, you know, what's what's the rationale behind giving a monster extra natural armor and, and like what that, how that affects the math and, and the, the challenge rating and, and everything else. And now that I understand those numbers, it's like I can see the matrix and I, I feel way better about that part of the job. Hold on a minute. You're a, you're a game designer. You can't say the numbers are fudged. <laughs> it's very it's very occasional. And the only number that, that we fudge is uh, I think it's natural armor. When a monster has natural armor, if we want if we want it to have more AC to give it more of a difficulty challenge, then we can say like, oh, we can bump it up and say it has natural armor. Um, either, otherwise, everything is very very carefully calculated. Yeah, yeah, I know. But we used to work for Games Workshop over here, and um, oh, we had cool. the same thing with army lists and points values and all of that kind of stuff. And the guys at the studio, the big dirty secret was you just stick a points value on it, you have a go, you have a few games and see if it works. Exactly. There's so much there's so much iteration and testing that you have to, even yeah. if you design a perfectly mathematical stat block, you're like, oh, look, these numbers, are, you might not actually have any fun fighting the monster. So that is actually something that we have to take into consideration, something Jeremy Crawford in particular is uh, loves to talk about is like, yes, this monster looks cool, right challenge rating, all of the numbers add up, has cool abilities. Is this actually fun to run as a dungeon master? And is it fun to fight as a player? And those are those are, you know, squidgier things. Those are those are things that are more hand wavy and, and experiential. So that's that's probably the more more of the art the art side of it than the science. Mm-hmm. So what's it like to work at Wizards? Because you have described in other interviews things like it's um it's like joining a cult. Or... <laughs> <laughs> and so we had Mike Mills on a couple of weeks ago, and he seemed very nice, but I'm desperate to find out if he's really a monster. So can you give us the down low on that? And if he's a monster, what's his armor class? Well, he, we haven't written a stat block from Rails yet, um, but we probably should. No, it, it is. I, I stand by my earlier statement that it feels like a cult, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not the kind of cult where you like you just you discover there's some nefarious secret. It's like, oh, no, this is a cool cult. I like this cult. This is awesome. <laughs> Um, there is a, it's a wonderful energy. There's so much support. I, I just wrote an email because I was, uh, it was my one year anniversary here. And I, I was like, I, I was thinking about reflecting on my past year. I've learned so much stuff and these people have been so patient and, and have, have lifted me up and made me feel like a part of the team from the very first day. I, I, even still people on this team, they say things to each other. Like, I'm so glad you're here. You really make a difference on this team. These people, they, they care. And so that's been, it's been really rewarding. Everyone has a very good sense of humor, which is important, I think, in, uh, in the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. It's an easy thing to take too seriously. So um, when, we, when we're having brainstorming meetings, people, it's, it's always going to be like half laughter because we're just like any good Dungeons and Dragons game. We're all, we're collaborating and from collaboration is going to come humor. Um, and so those brainstorming, those, those cool brainstorming meetings end up feeling like, like just a really good game of D and D sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, I've been, I've been extraordinarily lucky. Like every, every, I hate to, I don't want to brag about it, but the, the way that the people, when I got the job, they're like, Oh my God, it's a dream job. You're so lucky. And at the time, I was like, hell yeah, I am. Yeah, I am very lucky. It's great. But, and now I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys have no idea how cool this <laughs> job is. It's so much fun. 
Like there's there's like a whole day that I can remember last year where we're just all sitting around talking very seriously about vampires. And I was like, this is a this is a cool job. This is awesome. That was my entire teenage life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you um when you took the job at Wizards and, and all through the last year, have you had to bump into anyone who doesn't know what you do? You've had to explain it from scratch to like friends or relations, anything like that? That used to happen to me a lot more in video games, I think. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I, I would have thought video games was a bit more uh, transparent and uh, maybe yeah, mainstream. For sure. So I, I agree that the concept of video games is is probably more prevalent than, than Dungeons and Dragons, but it's also quite a, a lot younger. Um, and so people, even if they've never played Dungeons and Dragons, that term has been around since the 70s. And so they've probably at least heard it. So that that has made, that's a really a nice new bridge and be like, well, do you know about Dungeons and Dragons? And people will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if I was like, have you heard of Guild Wars? When, back when I was at Arena, I don't know Guild Wars 2. And, and they'd be like, mm, no, I can't say I have. And then I'd have to back up and be like, have you heard of World of Warcraft? So it's like, you know, you're, you're just trying to get on the, the common ground with what they're what their language is. But certainly there's, there's plenty of people out there who have heard it in passing, who don't understand it. Um, they, they remember the satanic panic, but that's pretty much the only impression that they have. You know, they're like, oh yeah, didn't people used to think that that was a, that was a, a satanic ritual game? They'd be like, yeah, they, uh, that is accurate. That's historically accurate. And they were right. Only <laughs> if you're doing it right. <laughs> says the woman who's joined a cult. Yeah, one of white people got the wrong idea. <laughs> so, in, in terms of designing stuff, then for D and D and the way the Brooks are probably changing from how they were back in the day. I'll give you an example. I've got a good friend of the show, Guy Milder, who runs some like monthly game sessions, and he runs all kinds of things. But he's been looking recently at the Godmaster's Guide to Ravnica, for example. Mm, yeah. And if you compare that to something like Greyhawk, he probably didn't get on as well with Greyhawk just because of the sheer amount of background material there is and stuff to read through. Whereas mm-hmm. the Guildmaster's Guide's got a lot of stuff that's implied setting actually in tables. So you roll on it and stuff comes out of that and stories and imagination. Totally. And there's more of the setting in cool tables to roll on and make things up. And is that was that a conscious decision? And, and how much do you think you're going to lean on that kind of design approach rather than writing you know, pages and pages of uh, background or that kind of thing? Well, I, I'm probably not the right person to ask, but if I had to postulate, it would be it would be that we would want to lean more toward what Ravnica does because a heavy background setting is a an obstacle, a barrier to new players. And something that 5th edition has focused on and done extremely well is to be incredibly inviting to new players, people who never saw themselves playing Dungeons & Dragons before, um, people who never saw themselves reflected in art, uh, things like that. And so we we are constantly interested in making sure that someone who's a dungeon master for the first time picks up a book like Ravnica and it decides that they want to dive into it. There's not going to be a whole lot of homework for them to do. Now, it's one of the most interesting challenges of working on a game like Dungeons & Dragons is... Uh, that you also have to be very conscious of the legacy crowd and the folks who have been playing this since the 70s and who don't who who want that kind of deep dive into lore, um, and so that's a that's a challenge that we're constantly juggling. Like how do you how do you make sure that you're appealing to new players without alienating the ones who've been with you since the beginning? Um, and I think every product is a different approach. Every every product is a little bit of a different balance. 
Um, we we always uh, we always talk about content in a book as being DM facing or player facing, um, and a lot of the a lot of the content that ends up being DM facing um, it has has the potential to be a little more advanced um, to to lean heavier on things like lots of reading, lots of lore, um, whereas player facing stuff I think we have we have a, a strong focus on making sure that that's really new player friendly. But yeah, that's that's my best guess to answer your question. So far as uh, adventures are concerned, um, Dragon Heist, yeah, uh, Dungeon of Mad Mage, that's the stuff that's the, that's newest out here in the public. Because you're so you're a couple of books ahead, like you say. So this is probably ancient history for you. <laughs> it's been a while. You remember working on, on on anything with those books? Is there anything that we would know from those? Oh, sure. Um, so both Dragon Heist and Dungeon of the Mad Mage were uh, written by the time I got here. So they were, um, I didn't do much on Dragon Heist. I did some magic item revision, so pretty minor stuff. But the Dungeon of the Mad Mage was one of my first big projects last year. Right. And that was a, it, again, it was, it was already written, but it was something that I got to for days and days. Is one of my favorite memories of last year was to sit down with Chris Perkins mm-hmm. and go through every single chapter. I went, I went through them all myself first, and I flagged things that didn't make sense to me. I was, at that time, being used as that new player experience eyeball of like, what does this mean? This design choice doesn't make any sense to me. Who is this? What is the, how many of these? You know, the, just to like, now you've got a total moron reading this book for the first time. What are they, what are they going to stumble on? Um, and then after that, we got to sit down, Chris Perkins and I, and go through all of those queries and re- resolve them, you know, whether that meant making a change in the text or leaving it as is or whatever. And that was so much fun. I think um, the, the one creative add that I had to that was not to be spoilery, but um, Dungeon of Mad Mage is a dungeon crawl through Undermountain, which is underneath uh, the Yawning Portal in Waterdeep. There is a mad wizard named Halister who is just, he's pure chaos and he, he's whimsical and evil sometimes, but not always. Anyway, each floor of this Undermountain adventure has his influence throughout it. And there's one floor that's got a, like a I think probably a, bu- a bunch of statues of him. And one of them, he, it's, it was described in the text as you, you see a statue of Halister wearing a cowboy hat. And I remember I, I was sitting next to Chris Perkins and I was like, this needs to, I mean, I think we're both in agreement. This is a nude statue of Halister, right? And he's like, oh yeah. And so I got to write the word nude. <laughs> my big creative contribution <laughs> you're welcome world um, i can't yeah. unhear that now or unsee yeah. it unfortunately yeah. yep. well, you're welcome <laughs> i i have a I've, I've had a lot more creative input on um <laughs> coming out this year because of the, that long lead time that we we're talking about so i'm, I'm yeah. very excited for you guys yeah. to, to see what we got in 2019 yeah is it you talk about um, there's a there's a massive amount of legacy in all things D and D. It's 45 years old now. This yeah, game. Yeah. So like when you're getting your when you're getting into it, you how hard do you find it to innovate to come up with something new? Because there's probably about 15 different monster books just released by Wizards of the Coast over its time and TSR before that, and then all the third party stuff. Can you come up with a new monster? Can you come up with a new magic item? That's got to be a stretch. Yeah, I think so. Certainly, we don't have any trouble doing it. A mm. lot, of, a lot of the monsters we we try to be um, fairly consistent. Again, it's that 
that user experience, the streamlining of our monster design. So monsters tend to share abilities so that we don't have to, we don't have to give the DM constantly having to remember like new kinds of abilities, new spells for monsters to have the iconic legendary monsters for sure. But if we're just designing like a new kind of goblin, it'll probably be a lot like the goblin that you're used to yeah. um, because, because we don't, we don't want to put a huge burden on, onto DMs. But when it comes to magic items, I mean, the sky's the limit, right? Like it's that, that's why they call it a magic item. So, you know, it's, it, those are, those are super fun. Those, those meetings we've got, we've had meetings where we're just, um, we, we look at a map that our, our cartographer drew and we're like, all right, these little details on this map, they're just, they're just flourishes that the cartographer made, but what, what are they? Let's, let's brainstorm what these could be. Let's write stories about these things. Um, and, and those, those are my favorite kind those, those meetings, because you're sitting around with the most creative people that you've ever met in your entire life. And, and you're just like shotgunning ideas together. Um, so I think that I couldn't, to answer your question, I could not probably design a whole new magic item by myself that would be, you know, useful. But with our powers combined here at, at D&D, um, we were able to innovate and, and jump off of each other's ideas and, and enhance one another's creativity, which has been super cool. I love the idea that you have your, your desk diary and it was a nine to 10 magic item meeting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my diary doesn't look like that. Yeah, <laughs> awesome! It's so fun. It's I, I just I'm, I count my lucky stars every day. Two, two, three goblin weapons. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Who showed you my calendar? We <laughs> <laughs> <Point> out people. <laughs> we spies everywhere. It was Merle's. He's a monster. <laughs> so you mentioned magic items there, and this is it leads me to a question one of our beloved listeners has sort of been asking about. Uh, do the team look at mechanics from other games or things from other other games and bring them in? And one example I was thinking of there is me and Baz used to play quite a lot of Earth Dome back in 1994, back in the hazy days when everything was in black and white. And that had a, a sort of feature of magic items that they got better the more you found out about them. And you had to like perform deeds that the original owner had done and all this kind of stuff and added extra history. So there's all kinds of like things that other games have done. Do you kind of like, as a group cast about into other systems and other games and the settings and think, how can we apply this to D and D and like, what, how can we D and Dify this idea? Yeah. That's so that is always something that I've done in my game dev career. Um, in video games, it's, it's less of a, of a secret that people do that. Like if you're, you'll, you'll see, um, Destiny had this beautiful UI and then you saw that UI popping up in a, a, No Man's Sky and like the, this a bunch of games just started seeing it. And you could see, you'd be like, oh yeah, they, they stole the Destiny UI. And so that's something that they do in video games all the time. And so when I came here, I was like, hey, how much do you guys like just rip off from other games and tabletop? <laughs> because we do it all the time in video games. It's totally fine. And it's, I, I think it's done less here. But the the answer to your question is a little bit complicated because I, um, D and D is older than I am. And so I, I didn't ever get to play in contemporaneously with the, the original D and D. And so one thing that I don't know for sure is how much those, the games that come out in the nineties and the two thousands and, and, and now how much are those borrowing from old D and D, right? So like how, how, where's, where does that snake stop eating itself? I'm not sure. However, I will say I love stealing 
great ideas from other people and call it, I mean, that's, you call it inspiration, right? But it's, it's just thieving. Um, Get a message. (laughs) Borrowing from other guys. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean, a good idea is a good idea. And, um, and I, I personally have not stolen anything consciously, but there's also, you know, there's, there's the old, like the standup stole a joke from another standup comedian. And it's like, well, that may have happened. Yeah. But it's also possible that that just gets wedged into your subconscious and then pops out later. And you have no idea the digestion from, from whence it came. Right. Um, so it's possible that, that's that's something that we just all do because we're constantly we're constantly ingesting other games. Everybody here is always talking about what video games they're playing and busting out new tabletop games. There's a, Jeremy Crawford is a, is a Kickstarter addict, and so he's constantly getting tabletop and, and role playing games that he's backed on Kickstarter and and looking through them and playing them. So I think we would be remiss in our duty if we didn't play a ton of games and do a, a lot of research. And that certainly has to inform uh, what we're doing here. Mm. Okay, cool. And, and while I'm on listening to questions, I'll ask another one for my, my good friend, Rich. It's not as harsh as they want to ask Mike, actually. It's a lot easier. But he says, when um, when you're making adventures or thinking about things, what monster do you want to put in there? And he's probably shared too much, but he always wants an owlbear or a beholder. And when I suggested they fight each other, he got very excited. But have you got like, some <laughs> favorite creatures or Perhaps you look at more at villains and characters or something like that. Is there something that you always, is there a trope that you kind of want to put into your games when you're making them? Or... Oh, man. I love villains a lot. I love hags. Uh, I, th- I think hags are my favorite creature. Mm-hmm. And I'm always trying to, I'm always interested in showing a villain uh, whose motivations are relatable, like Thanos or Killmonger, um, like the the idea that no, this villain this villain is doing things that are objectively evil. But once you understand why, you're like, ah, man, I can't really disagree with that. Uh, those are my favorite kind of villains. Um, we were just having this discussion like half an hour ago because one of the things that that is important in a game like D&D is to have a class of characters like goblins and bugs and and things things that players can just slaughter and not have to worry about their moral compass being compromised from the slaughter of these creatures but at the same time i find it so narratively interesting to have a, a villainous entity who's who's not wrong you're just like, ah, but you're executing it in a really bad way, my friend. So because I, I love those, I love those moments in games where you're like, you, you as a player group have to argue about what is the moral choice given, given like the good versus evil. And, and then that becoming more gray, how, how do you execute what you need to do? Because that's more, to me, that's more realistic. So yeah, I love hacks and I love morally gray villains. Yeah, I think the secret of a good villain is that they don't think they're evil, right? So they're doing stuff, but as far as they're concerned, it seems perfectly reasonable. Exactly, but there's 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 also villains who don't think they're evil, but they are batshit crazy, you know. <laughs> and that's that's still like you're like, well, you know, that's that's dehumanizing enough that you're you don't feel bad killing that villain. But the idea of a villain who is intensely evil but also very relatable, I was DM'd by. Uh, Chris Perkins and Jerry Holkins for an event last summer, the Waffles Inc. thing, and they they co-DM'd a bunch of it. And they they were both playing at one point. They were both playing Asmodeus, uh, and they were playing him at the same time as though he had two entities that spoke to each other. 
Asmodeus is one of these villains who's who's like he's objectively so evil. But when you talk to him, he's so charming and reasonable. And it's like, that's the best. It's the best. I love it. I love it. Yeah. d Devils. D&D is full of really great characters like that. They're not just, is, you know, they're just not goblins and orcs and uh, and trolls. You When right. you get to the name stuff and, and, and up to, you know, they're the big guys usually, aren't they? But not always. You've got so much really juicy material in there. It's difficult to get them all into the games that you play. Because you can't yes. play enough games to use the content that's out there. Totally. I don't think I've ever played in a game with Asmodeus. I want to. <laughs> I really do now. And I'll have to find me and Gaz will GM them together, which would be weird. Um, <laughs> there's, like, there's, some, there's some background D&D celebrities now, you know, in stuff like uh, Orcus and Lolf and all of those guys. They're oh, yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we love, I love all of the, all of our demon lords, all of our archdevils. They're all fascinating. Some of them, uh, most of them are pretty one-dimensional. You know, you've got like Yinogu who just loves to kill things and eat them. And <laughs> and, and that's 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 fair. You need that. You need that kind of villain. You know, like when you see a gnoll, you're like, ah, that's just a Yinogu beast. I, I can kill that thing um, and not feel bad about it because it's so important that, that you be able to do that in a game like D&D. Um, but, but I am a fan of something that's a, a little more nuanced and Lolth is a really good example of that. Um, there, there's a, a lot of the arch devils are pretty, are pretty complex. Mm-hmm. So those are, those are really cool characters. And those are, those are like, to your point, it's hard to, it's hard to work them into a campaign because they're kind of all the nuclear option, right? But like there's, yeah, 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 yeah. You need after four years of playing D and D you drop that in. So I, I think a lot of groups don't even get there. A lot of groups kind of fizzle out before level 10, I think, or, or start over in a new campaign. It's a little hard to lead off, although I think it's possible to just be like, hey, level one, Asmodeus is here. What are you going to do? Um, that'd be kind of a fun game, actually. Well, it can be, because the sort of villains you're talking about are the ones who would who will invite you to dinner as much as, like, roll for initiative. Oh, yeah. So yeah. just because you're level 30 doesn't mean you can't have a conversation with them for sure yeah yeah because that's all you can do because you're not going to draw steel on them are you yeah you're definitely not going to win that fight <laughs> i quite like the idea as well when you, you can kind of do that long-term bet and switch with the players to a degree where you're working for a wealthy patron and then it's you know only when they've got to a reasonably high level they find out it's actually one of the bad guys oh yeah and it's, as the missions suddenly start to get more and more dubious and you're thinking well we're doing this for a good reason and then it turns out like no you're just like really in hot to the bad forces now yeah like, but what are you gonna do about it you know it's like, yeah you wake up one day and you realize you're the bad guys <laughs> yeah because <laughs> yeah, you realize you've only ever met your boss in the dark and there's no garlic around and uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of red wine <laughs> I know that you've played uh, a monk in D&D, so that's what I wanted to ask you about because me and Baz had a trip through the Player's Handbook a, a few episodes ago just to kind of go through it, and it's the one character class for me that doesn't naturally feel like it's a D&D class. I don't know why, for some reason. I think perhaps if you look at um, you know our contemporary history and stuff like that, things like uh, a fighter, you can think of a Zulu warrior or a Japanese samurai, or there's all kinds of examples, and it's the same mm-hmm. for you know, religious followers could be a paladin or you could easily think of Teutonic Knights or you could think of all kinds of things. And I think most of the classes, there's some kind of like historical touch point and various varieties of it. But the monk feels very much like um, 
an Eastern thing. And I don't, yeah. know whether, I don't know whether it naturally fits into a fantasy game, and perhaps that's just because of the, the way pulp books are written in the West or whatever else. But what's your sort of your pitch for monks to me to sound that it is a proper D and D class? <laughs> um, well, I would say a monk is a monk. Monks have always been some of my favorite characters to play in RPGs because. I love to I love to hit fast and get out. Like I I love to be a little bit not exactly a glass cannon necessarily, but but maybe like a glass kangaroo. Like you're you <laughs> you run in and you punch with your hands and your feet, and then you you zip out. Um, and if you get hit, which happens to me all the time, you're probably dead. Uh, and so that's you know that's that's the trick is to make sure you didn't get hit. And I think that that is it. That is what makes the monk a unique addition to the classes as there's there's rogue has that to some degree but it's definitely not like in your face fighting i think a, a rogue is is uh is sneaky behind the back tricksy kind of thing monk is not tricky but a monk is uh as a mixture of a fighter and a rogue in a lot of ways so i guess those the classes that came after those the classic four all ended up having some hybridization um, and that's that's the hybridization that I see um, for the monk. I have really enjoyed playing her. I will say that that one of the shortcomings of the monk is there's a a lack of um, of role playing that comes naturally with the monk. Not not to say that they're not rich with character and background and and you know your monastery story and and all of that. But with a wizard, with a sorcerer, you've got options that are. Um, you can use your spells for for interesting problem solving, um, which is a big part of at least our campaign on, in Akink is that we do we try to do a lot of of, um, of problem solving that doesn't have to do with combat um, because that's just what we all find the most interesting. Um, and so Rosie, my monk, her her ability to solve problems not using her fists is pretty limited canonically. I ended up taking a feat of um, magic initiate cleric early on just just so that I could have three spells to cast um, because because I, I found that I was like well if I can't punch my way out of this then I'm probably you know I'm not gonna have much that I can contribute um, so that's that's the only shortcoming that I see but otherwise um, a monk is a blast to play I haven't played the other two paths but I'm, I'm playing a way of shadow like the the ability to essentially teleport through places of dim light and get you can get advantage after you do that on on your next attack and every attack now I can hit like four times so it's it's the perfect class for me I love I love doing all that those punches and kicks it's so cool um and there's good crowd control the the stunning strike you can I'm just reiterating the player's handbook to you guys now sorry um, but stunning, <laughs> stunning strike he hasn't read that bit he doesn't, doesn't like the monks so this would be news to him <laughs> Sunny Strike is, a, is an incredible crowd control, um, and you get it on every single attack for one key point. So that if you if you can manage to to get them to fail their their I think it's a con save, um, then you have completely obliterated the ability for the enemy to fight back, and everybody gets advantage on them. So I, I, it's, it is for combat just an incredible class to have in your party. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting around classes and stuff like that because I think there's been changes to some actually now based on feedback but 
when we played D and D last, I had a ranger, and like the number of people that told me I'd done it wrong and I should have a rogue if I wanted that type of character. And I was like, I don't <laughs> care. I want a halfling ranger, and he's got a necklace of goblin teeth, and he likes animals, and uh, you know, kept the whole backstory. And it didn't matter to me that objectively the rogue class was better in inverted commas because the numbers were slightly better or whatever else. Yeah, yeah it's more about the the story and the, the sort of character I wanted. It wasn't yeah. backstabby, whatever. It was a, it was yeah. a ranger. And, exactly. You know, doesn't You're- matter too much about the numbers as long as they're not like wildly off you uh yeah the numbers should be a second because you like like i said i don't know D unless unless you're all min maxing I, I don't understand the the obsession with numbers the party's min maxing i i understand the temptation to min max to rest me on that but i think that that is a that's sort of counterproductive to what D is about you know it's not it's not code we say here we're like the English language is code for us. It's our it's our code. At the end of the day, it's 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 to tell a story. You're you're telling stories collectively, and your your slightly better numbers I don't think help you tell a better story. But I also believe that anyone who tells anyone that they're playing D and D wrong is a fool. Um, your DM your DM is the only one who's allowed to adjudicate that. Uh, and so anybody weighing in on someone else's character choice needs to just take a long, hard look at themselves. Yeah, I'm not even sure the DM gets a look in, to be honest. No. <laughs> <laughs> not really. <laughs> um, Kate, you, you, have the, you have the privilege of playing a lot of your D&D in the public eye. Because you, know, you play on stream, you play for Acquisitions Incorporated. This is a big deal these days. So um, I'm pretty sure, tell me I'm wrong... You must have a lot of people telling you exactly how to play your character <laughs> and, and, how, yeah. and how you're doing it all wrong and the numbers are not right. <laughs> yeah, I I confess that I stopped reading the YouTube comments a couple of years ago for that very reason. Um, because at the end of the day, Jerry, my DM, is, is the one who has the rules that he's interested in in his head. Um, if I fudge a roll, I roll a wrong die. If he doesn't point it out to me, then I assume that he's just cool with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there's also, I mean, the experience of playing all of your D and D games in front of an audience is interesting because it's not interesting television to constantly be flipping through the player's handbook, which is a quintessential part of the D and D experience is for you to be like, well, I'm going to look up that spell again and make sure that I'm rolling the right. But it's you know we're live, we're live on Twitch, and I do not think that that makes for riveting entertainment. So, um, so we have to just kind of fly. You know, we have to say, I if if I roll uh, a wrong die and it's it, unless somebody tells me like, oh, that should be a da, I'm like, oh, so okay. But it, if that doesn't happen, then we're just moving on. And so, yeah, so that's that's one interesting difference between the live games and a home game. Um, but otherwise, those games are very similar. Um, I, I think our our live RC team games, we were just talking about this yesterday, are so goofy. And and we're, we're all just like constantly tr- trying to crack each other up and and piss off our DM and to me, those those two things are what I've always experienced in D anD. d Those are the genuine experiences of like, how can I make the other people at this table laugh or cry, and how can I make my DM so mad at me? <laughs> um, and we we have we have a very genuine uh, we have a very genuine experience with all of that. So. <laughs> Well, nothing's changed since the seventies and eighties. That's 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 proper old school 
playing role-playing games if everyone's honest about it. You can read a lot of essays about like emotional arcs, but when it comes down to it, you need to see your GM snort coke out of their nose, really. <laughs> and, and... Yes. <laughs> yeah. There was a short break in the 90s when Vampire came along and everybody tried to be filled with angst and stuff, but it didn't last very long. Oh, yeah. Dude, no, Vampire, I, I think, is undergoing some kind of revitalization. It is, yeah. It's back from the dead. <laughs> So I'm so excited. I never got to play vampire. I never got to play role playing games when um, I was a teenager because I lived in a pretty rural part of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I remember I worked at a coffee shop, 18, and I I remember there were kids in the back of the coffee shop who'd play D and D and Magic the Gathering all the time. But when I went back there, they would just fall silent. They wouldn't even talk. So I felt a little alienated from them. Um, and I assumed, I think that the impression I got there was uh, like, okay, this isn't for girls. Girls aren't allowed here. But I've always loved role playing, playing pretend and acting and, and everything that makes for a, an enjoyable D&D experience. So I got there eventually, but I, I never got to play vampire. I never got to play werewolf. I got to sit and watch other people, other guys play werewolf and vampire. Um, but I was... I was not invited to join. It's oh, so all sad. very sad. I know. I know. Yeah, no, it's a great game. It's a great game. They've, um, they've fixed the mechanics up a bit. Ken Hart's had a go at it, and it's it's a lot more interesting mechanically as well. As we say, it's story first, I like to do. But, yeah, it's definitely worth looking into. I've been okay. playing right. a bit recently. So you touched on something there. I don't know whether you want to um, say anything about it or not, but obviously we're, we're blessed these days to have people like yourself and Satine and uh, some people who are not middle-aged white men that are in positions of designer or community manager or that kind of thing. Yeah. And the world's looking a lot more rosy. And I think, obviously, you know, critical role and things like that and having more access and more openness enables that kind of thing at all. So do you think we're generally just going in a, a good trajectory now to get more inclusivity in gaming and that kind of stuff? Yeah, of course. I, I do think the, traje- the trajectory is excellent. I think that we can always do better. And, and Wizards, I think, has to be the company that leads the way just be by virtue of us being the biggest. And so we, in fifth edition, the D&D team really took a lot of strides to make sure that people who were not middle-aged white dudes would find something to appeal to them in the player's handbook and in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And to make the, the book very, very beautiful, full of incredible art that depicts people of all sizes and races and genders um, we've, we are constantly pushing that. It's harder than you might think, um, because I think a lot of fantasy artists are just used to painting what they're used to painting. And so it ends up being like a lot of strong, gruff, battered looking white guys, and then a lot of really young, scantily clad women. And mm-hmm. both of those are things that we, we push. Like we, we want, we want to see some young, scantily clad men. We want to see like old, gruff women who are not this like hourglass body shape we want to see these things um and so we've we've been lucky we've had artists who have really knocked it out of the park and we're it's something that we're constantly pushing but here on the team um something that i found surprising and i've, I've talked about it a few times is that about a third of the DD team is women and so the, that's that's already a direction that we're pushing which is has been really cool um it's very supportive it's a good spot i think almost all of our art directors and, and um we've got Kate Irwin, Shauna Narciso, Emmy Tanji, and Trish 
uh, Yoakum, and they those are our entire like art and graphic design department. They're incredible. Uh, so any, anything that comes from these books looking beautiful is because a team of women were, made it happen. They're they're just the best. We've also we've got I'm the only woman on the game design team, but we have female writers, female editors, and there 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 are many of them. They're they're kind of hidden um, in in the the limelight sometimes, but. They're, they're everywhere. We do not, uh, Emmy Tanji is uh, our graphic designer and I think she's now an art director. She is our only person of color on the team. And so I, uh, I think we can definitely do better there. That's something that is, it's just going to be a force. It's something I think about a lot and always have in my career is, is how to get more viewpoints and perspectives onto uh, the teams that I'm on. The only way that we're going to get there is to actively source it and to to understand that it takes time it's it's a it's a thing where folks who are not middle-aged white dudes have been unwelcome and continue to be unwelcome in the gaming industry and so uh we you know until they are welcome until they have the opportunity to get that experience to make games we're just not going to see those folks showing up uh, at places like wizards so you know it's it's a whole thing. It's a whole movement, uh, and it it has to it has to start with I don't know tolerance. We're not going to solve this issue today on this podcast, obviously, but but making I don't know giving people opportunity, reaching down and pulling folks up, and and making sure that they they have the chance to to make their voices heard is something that I think is really important. Beyond that, I don't have a lot of wisdom about it, but yeah, I think we're on the right track. Yeah. What was it like in the video games world, Kate, back when you were working on Guild Wars 2 and stuff like that? I don't know much about the video game industry at all. Is is there any comparisons there? Oh, sure. Um, like from a diversity perspective in that, because that's an, an even newer industry in, in lots of ways, but although there'll be obviously a lot more people working within it. Right. You know, this is something that I think about a lot. And the idea of what, what I know from the video game industry and what I'm learning about tabletop and what those two industries can learn from each other. This is, this is not a, a thought that I've vocalized yet. So bear with me if it's not tremendously articulate. I, I think that video games are generally speaking much higher budget than a tabletop book. You know, they, they're higher budget as far as time, as far as people hours uh, and actual money. So here we've got books coming out like every three or four months, a video game could take 10 years. So there's more of an investment. There's more on the line, the higher stakes. And I think as a result, folks are more loath to make progressive change because those stakes are so high that a failure could represent a, a calamity for a studio. You know, if they uh, if if they don't go with what they know in their gut will work, what will sell because it already has, then there's it's it's really hard to get people to to deviate from that. Whereas you get to be a little bit I hate this word but scrappier at a studio like this where you know you're constantly you're putting out books and the audience is huge and the popularity of the game is is uncontested. But you have the ability to change uh, on a on a level that is it's low cost, but it's very high reward. Um, it's it's high risk, but it it tends to be because these are smart people. 
if we want to push something, especially our our own like social agendas, putting people of color into illustrations and different body types that like I mentioned before, that's something that video games, in my experience where I've been, they shy away from it because it's not what's done. And here it's more like it's what should be done, so let's do it. Is, is the attitude that the D&D team has. So that's a really, really big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure I'm stepping on toes when I say this, but I, I, I just, that's, that's been my personal experience. I've worked at a number of studios and the bigger they are, the less likely they want to, to change, which is a shame because those are the ones that have the biggest megaphone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think again, like we were talking about earlier, I think that trajectory is changing um, I think that there, I've just started playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey and it's the, I love the Assassin's Creed game so, so, so much. And um, it's the first game where you got to pick which gender you wanted your character to be. And every, every other Assassin's Creed game, um, I, with a, the exception of some multiplayer ones, I think, uh, it's been a male, it's been a male protagonist. That's what you get. And, mm-hmm. and so in, in Odyssey, you got to pick, write a character creation. Like, do you want to be... Alexios, or do you want to be Cassandra? And they did completely different VO for every character because they all call you by your name. You know, you're you're. Uh, they did a lot, a lot of work to support this, and it's amazing. It's so cool. I I love that I get to do this. So big props to Ubisoft um, for for making that stride. And so things things are getting better. We're getting there. I think that. The, the video game industry is just, it's just slow to change. It's, it's a big, it's a behemoth, you know, it's a huge industry. And so those, when you're making, when you're an industry making whatever, fuck, I can't even imagine over $5 billion a year, certainly when it, collectively, when you're making that much money, it is very hard to change your habits. I understand that completely. So I get it, but, um, but I am glad that it's, that it is changing. Yeah, well, with Assassin's Creed being popular, if, if that change they've made is successful popular, it becomes the new norm, doesn't it? So, as you've said before, if they've got a success strategy, they'll just keep doing it. So, hopefully, a couple of years from now, like, all the games will just do that because it's what yeah. people expect from the game. Like, you know, yes. what do you mean I can't keep my gender? This is ridiculous. Like, you know, what yes. kind of rubbish game is this? So, exactly. Yeah. That's all good. Yeah. So, Touching on your, your your video game experience and moving to pen and paper games, then how was that for you from moving from you know, quite a visual sort of experience to producing a pen and paper game. <laughs> I'm sort of also thinking around, like, you used to do a lot of uh, user experience stuff and, and things like that. So you also mentioned a bit previously about DM-facing and player-facing. So is, is your focus around what the players see and get out of it a bit more? Or how does this, you know, what how you brought skills from the video game industry into what you're doing at D&D, the world? Well, I know that one of the reasons they were interested in, interviewing me was because of my user experience uh, expertise, because whether you're a DM or a player, the user experience of these D&D books is crazy important. Um, and we, we learn things from previous editions that we put into practice now. So kind of to your earlier question about the, the Greyhawk, that like mountains of lore, kind of like just, just hard reading, read a ton of stuff, and then you figure this world out. We have found that DMs, as much as players, enjoy interactive elements in in their game. So 
having having a, a ton of roll tables, you know, that those kinds of things uh, is is fun for a DM to be able to roll on a table. Like that's something that they get to do. Is it's it's super enjoyable. The element of randomness. You don't have to be a DM who's constantly inventing something random. You just you have a table you can lean on. You can choose something cool from it. You can roll on it, or you can be inspired by it and do something completely different. So that's been that's that has been a, a big focus of mine. I've, I'm very interested in the new player experience as well. I'm sure most of the people who listen to this show are seasoned D and D players, and they've they've done it forever, and maybe maybe may or may not remember what it was like to create their first character for the like going from from absolute nothing to having your first character. But it still is not the easiest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I still think that like if you don't have a friend to help you make your character sheet, you're gonna mess up. It's so easy to do. And so I it's one of my my personal design challenges that I noodle on sometimes is how how would I make that new player experience just seamless? Like you're you go through you go through an experience of creating a character and by the end of it, your math is airtight. You've got all the good skills that you want. You're you're interesting, and you at least have an idea of how to function. Even if you don't know your whole character's life story yet, you know that you can. You roll this, you add that number to it, and that's the one that the monster will die. You know, like that's that is to me a really interesting challenge, and it is not an insignificant one. You know, Dungeons and Dragons is not an easy game to play the first time. So yeah, so it's. Again, it's that balance between how do you keep in mind the the new player accessibility while also treasuring and maintaining that legacy player base. Um, it, it's it is a very interesting challenge. Yeah, I think it's worth looking around. I've mentioned before looking at other games in the industry. Oh, yeah. What you might find interesting is looking at Mothership, which is um, kind of like a sci-fi horror. OSI style game, so it's like Alien or Event Horizon, that kind of stuff. But the really interesting thing they've done with it is the character sheet, where they've got all the instructions on the sheet as well. Ooh, yeah, I love that. Put these numbers in this box, and then that gives you a bonus down here, and then go over to this section and pick one of these three things and, you know, pick from this list. Yeah, It's really cool. That's awesome. I like that a lot. Yeah, infographics and graphic design is, is a bigger part of the game experience now than it's ever been, really. You've got to make stuff accessible. It's still in the book industry. It's not just words in columns on, on pages. That's not enough now, is it? You've got, right. got to hold people's hands and make it a visual experience as well. You do. And people's, people's attention spans are diminishing. I lament this for myself. Like I, I used to keep so much information in my head, and now my phone keeps it all for me. And so I don't keep, I don't think, I don't memorize anything. I, like my brain is just this wet noodle. And so I, I think that, you know, that's probably a pretty universal experience is that our attention spans are getting shorter. We have less patience. And so if you make a book that is just pages and pages and pages of instruction, you're going to lose a lot of people, sad to say. However, if you make it so there's, there's rule tables, there's illustrations, there's interesting flow charts, you've got uh, like box text that it's really important for us to just even visually break up the book so that it's not a slog to read. That's, you, you've got sidebars um, and, and little call-outs. Um, and so it's, it's the same. I think probably school textbooks are designed in a very similar way. Is like, how do, you, how do you keep students from falling asleep when they're reading this? And so, yeah, that's, that's incredibly important to us. Okay, so 
I'm just going to check through my listener questions again. Okay. There's a lot of random stuff in there. In fact, uh, Andy's from my local game store. I did ask him for a question, and all he managed to come back with, because you mentioned your artist earlier, was that Dragon Heist is a really good work of art, and he loves it as a role-playing book. So it's not really a question. Good. I think he's only I, something like 50th game of D&D that he's run this year. Which, uh, <laughs> I, will, I will pass that on. I think that's that credit largely creatively goes to uh, Chris Perkins. So I, w- I will let him know that you, you thought highly of it. Yeah, indeed. So you've mentioned again in another sort of interview that um, the magic is in the group and making a great D&D group really depends on the people you've got around you. So how do you think the mechanisms of wizards can help in that. I mean, is the, like back in the day, me and Bazzi used to have to write little postcards and put them in shop windows and stuff, say, ring my house if you want. <laughs> you know, it's like, now we have the internet and stuff like that. And I know you, obviously, wizards are going to D&D Beyond to give you online tools and all that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. Do you think there's more from a, a like a community point of view that wizards can do to help connect people together? Or, you know, what, what are your sort of feelings around that? I mean, it feels a little bit like you've kind of got to, you know, help, help yourself. You've got to go out there and meet people, but what do you think the mechanisms are having a big company like Wizards that, that can help other people find other gamers that they're going to get on with? I love this question. I think about it all the time. Whether it is Wizards' responsibility or not, I'm not sure. However, I think there is a huge opportunity in the market for somebody. I know there's I know there's stuff like Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, um, and people use Skype and Google Hangouts, and they do everything digitally. But I would love... I've actually brainstormed the idea of like a Tinder app, <laughs> like an actual an online dating app, but it's just to create D&D groups. Um, and you, you're able to say things like what kind of game you're into. You're really combat focused or you want something with lots of puzzles. And this will, okay, Cupid style, like match you to other people who are into the same kind of game. And then at least you can find other human beings. I still think that the the most compelling version of Dungeons and Dragons is the one where you all sit around a table together in person and play. Yeah. That is so very difficult to get people to actually do on a regular basis. So I feel for that. And so I at this point, I'm just like, anything that helps folks find the kind of gaming group that they're interested in, um, maybe this, maybe something like this service. I've seen forums that do it um, in, a, in a pretty informal way. But the idea of a of an app that allows you to I'm always solving things with apps, so I'm sorry that I put that in, in that term. But the the idea of an app that that allows you to search for a D and D group, even if it's just like a one shot, if folks who are you can flag yourself as a I can I can I'll just I'll present you guys some information architecture documents on this app that I've designed in my head. Um, but yeah, you can flag yourself as like we're new player friendly. We'd love to help a new player learn to play Dungeons and Dragons, or like this is for veterans only. We don't have any time to hold hands, and we're level fifteen. Those kinds of things I feel like would be really helpful for folks. Is it called Air D and D? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quick patent it, Baz. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a really good idea. It's really interesting. Anyway, I think, I know uh, in the UK, we used to have UK Role Players Forum, and that, that died um, sort of last year. And there's various other things like the Google Plus platforms sort of being decommissioned. And there's a lot of people that are kind of like casting around going like, well, where can we just go and chat about games and D&D and stuff and, and meet right. people and organize games? and I'm sort of interested in what the next step is. I don't think anybody that I've spoken to has come up with the right answer yet, but it feels like there's a lot of a lot more geeks these days that has never been better to time to be a D&D player. Exactly. But it also seems really hard 
to get people together and, and talk about D&D in certain ways. There's like little Discord groups. and But it all seems very splintered now rather than having like one place you can go to for everything. I will say one of the things that I've seen with the Acquisitions Incorporated community, the fans, is that um, they have self-organized. They go, they use the the discords that we that we set up. We have we have a C team Discord that's really active, and they play their own D and D games now. They are all getting together and, and subdividing into their own D and D games. And so, I guess pra- a bit of practical advice you can use today, if you're in search of a D and D group, if there's a fandom that you like, whether it's D and D related or not. You can probably find a Discord for it, and I bet you you can find people who are playing D anD D. And so you can you can at least start there. You can find folks who are like minded, who enjoy the same piece of media you do, and then jump off and and try playing D anD D with them. So that's that's been something that's been really wild to see, and I'm sure that's true. It's got to be so true of, of fandoms like Critical Role. Um, so any anybody who's got a, a live play fandom, you've almost certainly got groups of D anD D players who would love to have you. Yeah, I think it's because me and Baz are old. We don't understand Discord and, and Slack and things like that. <laughs> I go asking rules questions and people talking about ice cream or something. And it's like, what? Well, hang on. I thought this was a D&D group. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just too old for it. <laughs> so have you got anything planned? Like, have you got plans? Have you got things that you want to introduce or big ideas? And how confident do you feel now? You're a year into your role, as, you, as you've said. How confident are you now that you can try and start to push things that, that you want that perhaps other people haven't thought of or like maybe pick up ideas again that have been cast aside previously? Have you got kind of ambition is basically what I'm saying? Or is it just all like just so great day-to-day that you don't even think about what you're going to do next? Well, I, I've, again, you know, as you mentioned, I've only been here a year, but I think my ambition is to, gosh, if I have anything, it's just to, to like push my own brand of feminism. And I know that that's a a loaded word, but what I mean by that is I want to see women in the spotlight in, um, in Dungeons and Dragons. And largely for me, uh, related to what we were talking about earlier, that ends up being female villains, Mm -hmm. which is part of why I love hags so much. But the, the idea of, uh, of the, uh, a woman, a female character who can be, truly villainous, um, but not in the like sexy vampire way either. Like she's, <laughs> that's optional. That's great. Um, we've got, we've got plenty of, of that's covered, right? <laughs> as, you know, like, yeah, we've got a lot of, a lot of that, but the, the idea that a, a female character can be complex and motivated by things that are not just pure evil, like, like not, not like a matron mother from drow society. Those, those are, you know, plenty evil villainous creatures, but they're also completely unrelatable. You can't, you don't understand their motivations as a human being. So that like relatable female villain that you kind of, you like, you understand her, but you also know that she's totally wrong. I guess that, that would be, if anything, the, the uh, agenda that I would want to push. And, and luckily this is the kind of thing where I, I just like, I, I can see, I can imagine like 10 of my coworkers being like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. Um, we've never had a book. We've had like Xanathar's Guide and, and uh, Morgan Cannon's. We've never had a book that was headlined by a female character in our canon. So that would be super cool to see. Uh, and so, yeah, just, just to kind of kind of push, not that, that women need to be out there being strong and fighting, which of course we do and, and they, they should, but that also women can be fallible and that they don't have to be sexy and that they can be monstrous and that it's awesome, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's probably 
my goal. Um, and I, I think it'll, I think it'll be pretty easy to get there. Cool. Sounds like you're pushing an open door as well, to be honest, which is really good to hear. Yeah. And, and we, uh, I know that D and D has a, a history with being, I don't know there, what I've heard, I, I didn't experience this and, and I haven't experienced it at all, but I know that, that D and D's got a history of having issues with, um, representation, both internally and externally, um, and that people have felt marginalized by things that are included in D and D. And it's something that we are constantly striving to improve. And we, we want everyone of every stripe to, to see themselves in D and D and to feel like they belong. And so if we ever fuck that up, I hope that people will tell us about it. Um, and luckily they do. And we, we are always like, okay, that's, that is something that we absolutely can do better next time. There was, it's been no pride at all about it. We just, we want, we just want everybody to have a good time. That's the whole motivation. Well, can't think of a better way to, to end our chat, Kate. <laughs> that sounds like a good place to finish up. So, um, conscious of time uh, and and Kate we always ask uh, a similar question of our guests as well that we always want to give our guests the opportunity to recommend to our listeners anything that's really floating their boat at the moment whether that be gaming or movies or or anything that you're super into right now you know can you can you pitch anything our way that that our listeners can go and look up or uh, or enjoy for themselves what are you into oh right God. now yes I can <laughs> and it's not related to gaming at all but no one has trouble answering these, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is, it's a mixed recommendation because it's not done yet, but it's True Detective Season 3. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's out in the UK yet. I don't know if you guys get things. Yeah, 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 just about. Yeah, well, we called it Season 2 because there was no Season 2. <laughs> exactly. We don't talk about Season 2. Um, no, but, right. but it's on Episode 5 as of the recording of this podcast. And I am dying, you guys. I am dying. It is so, I haven't, I wake up every morning hoping that it's Sunday so I can see the next, I've never been like this with a show before in my life, but it's so good. And it, it hits on themes that I love, which are things like um, sort of, it's got this like quantum mechanic dementia kind of theme. But one of the things that I love to see in media is old people. And they they have they have a strong theme. They're they're jumping around in time uh, like they did in season one, but it's more extreme in season three. And um, they have they have the the main character is he's shown at thirty four, at forty four, and at seventy. Um, and so you see these the, it jumps around constantly. You see these parts of his life and how they're all affecting each other. And anytime you have a heroic old person in a show you're gonna get me like i'm just gonna i'm gonna be in love with your show forever so so yeah that's that's my recommendation uh, the reason it's a mixed recommendation is because it's not finished and it's making me insane and so if you want to get into it don't get into it until it's done that you can binge the whole thing <laughs> it's so good it's so good yeah but have you got anything that you're really excited about because <laughs> <laughs> Also, Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I just started it, but it is fabulous. So I, I'm really, really liking that. Okay. Well, I'm glad you like old people. So hopefully this show's been all right for you. So <laughs> Big fan. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for being on, Kate. Yeah, of course. I'm really happy that you guys, uh, that you invited me. This was, this was a blast. <laughs> Not a problem.
at the same time, and this is one of the very interesting challenges of, whoa, did you guys hear that? 